Well, good morning. My name is Jay Price, in case we haven't met, and I'm the campus pastor here at Triumph West, and uh, we are just so glad to have you here worshiping with us today as uh, we sing God's praises, hear his words. Um, just so glad to have you here. Um, today, uh, we'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and this is a, it's, it's a pretty traditional scripture text for right after Easter because what we're going to be reading about actually takes place all on the first Easter in the late afternoon, sort of towards evening of that day. So uh, let's start out. Let me read it for us. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. 
Well, don't you get the sense that in a way that, that this kind of feels like we're eavesdropping a little bit here? You know, basically overhearing this private moment, this private conversation between two friends who are walking the road to Emmaus after, I mean, what had been a pretty intense, pretty confusing day. I mean, Emmaus is basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And, and so even though it's Easter Sunday, I mean, the very first Easter Sunday, like the Easter Sunday, they don't know it. They don't get it. To them, Jesus is dead and gone. They don't have the whole picture. And this really creates some dramatic tension here because, I mean, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus himself shows up alive and in person and they don't recognize him. They were somehow, the text says, kept from recognizing him. But God wouldn't keep them from it for long, though. But for now, God has his reasons. So the, the, the risen Jesus joins the two friends along the way, incognito, as they're walking home from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. And incognito Jesus asks them what they're talking about. So they just stop, dead in their tracks. They, they, they can't believe that he hasn't heard. I mean, everyone in Jerusalem was talking about it. So they give him the lowdown on everything that had happened, including the, the unbelievable reports that their crucified rabbi got up and walked out of the grave. But that was crazy talk. And then, right there in, in the middle of explaining what had happened, right in the middle of their little speech, one of the friends, Cleopas, says something that, that every time I read it, Every time I hear it, 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 it's like a ninja kick to the gut because it's like Cleopas is taking all of our scars and all of our scabs, taking all of our bruises and pain, all of our doubts about God, all of our disappointments, and it's like he's taking this deep, dark part of our lives and he's squeezing it all into one little sentence. It's in verse 21. He says... But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. There it is. But we had hoped. Man, those words just kind of stick in your throat. And I'd be willing to bet that at some point in your life that you've said this or, or something very similar to this. I mean, I know I have probably more times than I'd care to admit. But we had hoped. Now, what our two Emmaus roadwalkers had hoped was that Jesus would be the one to save Israel. But then he went and got himself killed. And when Jesus died, their hopes died with him. Jesus and all their hopes were crucified, dead, and buried. And they said, but we had hoped. And I mean, here's the thing, that, that, that they weren't just disappointed they were disappointed by God. They were disappointed in God. And that is a hard road to walk. That is a dark and lonely road, isn't it? And we've walked that road, haven't we? But we had hoped that God would be the one to save our marriage. 
But we had hoped that God was the one who would help us kick the habit. But we had hoped that God would be the one to help us get, get a good paying job that we don't despise doing. But we had hoped that God was the one who would provide what we needed so we could actually retire. But we had hoped that God was the one who would cure our cancer or our migraines or, or our depression. But we had hoped that God was the one who would finally help us to get pregnant. But we had hoped that God would be the one that would bring our kids back to the faith. But we had hoped that God would be the one to, to help us get out of this spiritual funk that we've been in, this numbness in our heart and in our soul. But we had hoped, hoped that God would be the one to answer all of our 911 emergency prayers that we pray in a desperate attempt to survive the heartbreaking suffering of this life. But we had hoped. Seriously, I think one of the worst struggles in the life of a believer is having to deal with the fact that God does not and will not promise to live up to our hopes and our dreams. And we sure do have a lot of hopes, don't we? I mean, I mean you know, it's sort of like we, we all have this book of ground rules that, that God is supposed to live by. And when he breaks the rules, I mean, our rules, by the way, we throw a fit, maybe even scream at him. You ever scream at God? I have. I, I remember sitting in a hospital room once and literally screaming out loud, Hey, God, what good is it to believe in you and follow you if we can't count on you to be there when we really need you? At that moment, I had hoped, and God was not living up to it. And so I let God have it. And I'm not the only one who's ever done this either, who's ever let God have it. I mean, have you read the Psalms? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I love how one writer put it. He said that, that these psalms are written by people who basically say, hey God, how come you're up there catching Z's while I'm down here catching hell? This is not an isolated event either. At one time or another, and this is all throughout human history, God's people feel God's apparent absence. We feel like God's dragging his feet in giving us what we're so desperately hoping for. We feel like, like God's not there when we need him. But we had hoped. And so, uh, I mean... What do you do with this? What do you do about this? What do you do when God doesn't live up to your hopes? Well, and here's finally some good news for you. Thankfully, it's not a question of what you do or what I do. It's a question of what God does. When you're hurt, when you're disappointed, when you're let down, when you're maybe even screaming in God's face, when you're walking your own dark and lonely uh, Emmaus road, you know what God does? 
He walks with you. And he keeps on walking with you. He never stops walking with you. Ever. God doesn't usually rescue you from having to walk that dark and lonely Emmaus road, but he does walk with you all the way, just like we saw him do with these first two Emmaus road walkers. And listen, your, your honest and angry ranting doesn't drive him away. It doesn't put him off. I mean, if anything, it draws him to you. I mean, remember what Isaac read in our, in our call to worship just a little bit ago. God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Even when you don't think he's walking with you, he's walking with you. I mean, uh, the Emmaus roadwalkers didn't realize that Jesus was walking with them. And your eyes might be kept from recognizing him too for a time. But he's still walking with you. Whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you, whether you even want to believe it or not, Jesus Christ is walking with you. But do you know what makes that possible? I mean, we could never walk with him unless he first came to walk with us. But you know what Jesus had to do in order to walk with us? This is fascinating to me, but, but if you, you look up walking in the Bible, I mean, you know, like ac- actually physically walking by, by foot kind of thing. So if you, you look in the concordance or, or, or do some sort of word study on walking in the Bible, it's fascinating because the person in the Bible who walks the most is guess who? Jesus, Yeah. He walks more than anybody else. He's basically walking all the time. He walks everywhere. Why? To walk with us. And to do that, first of all, to walk with us, God had to become human. Then God had to become poor. Rich people don't walk everywhere. They ride, right? Even back when Jesus lived, Jesus was always walking because he was poor, And so God knew that if he was going to walk with us, he had to become human. He had to become poor. And when you are human and when you are poor, you are vulnerable. And so when God became human and poor in the person of Jesus Christ, it exposed him. That exposed him to our hostility. That exposed him to human violence. But he still came. He still came to walk with us, and we killed him. We put him on a cross. But some way, somehow, that was all part of the plan. Jesus was put on the cross because according, ultimately, to the will of God, Jesus died for our sins to tear down the barrier between us and God. And now Jesus is risen from the dead to walk with you. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and he walks with you. Believe it. Receive it. Trust in it. Jesus is alive, and he is walking with you. So, Go ahead and walk with him.
Walk with him. Walk with him in faith. Walk with him in trust. Walk with him in obedience. Walk with him in confidence. Walk with Jesus Christ because he walks with you. And you know what? Jesus doesn't just walk with us either. He also speaks with us. And the words that Jesus speaks aren't like any other words because he has the words of eternal life. I mean, look how Jesus talks with the first Emmaus roadwalkers. It's in verse 24 if you're following along. First of all, Jesus gives them, honestly, what's a gentle rebuke, okay? It's like a sort of a brotherly course correction. And then... Then he fills them up with words of life and hope. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So so think uh, think of this. Think, of, think about the great and beautiful irony here. I mean, Jesus' death, okay? That, I mean, first, first of all, Jesus' death just absolutely crushed these guys' hopes. But it was actually that death which accomplished exactly what they were hoping for. And then some. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel, but he was crucified, But it turns out that in that crucifixion that he did redeem not just Israel, but the whole wide world. So Jesus tells them that his suffering and death was necessary for the redemption of Israel. And when these Emmaus disciples were stumbling along that dark and lonely road, Jesus shows up and it's like the noonday sun. Jesus speaks words of hope and And they received those words of hope. Verse 32 says that their hearts burned in their chests. This is who Jesus is. This is how he works. This is what he does. Jesus doesn't abandon us in our grief. He joins us in it. He he suffers with us. Jesus himself has been a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, He sympathizes with our weaknesses. I mean, in his own darkest hour, Jesus himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when he speaks to us then, I mean, listen, his words aren't like any other words. His words aren't like any other words. His words carry weight. The words that once literally spoke life into existence now speak life into you. His words forgive sin. His words bring dead people out of their graves. His words create hope. Jesus gives himself to you. Jesus pours himself into you in his words. Now, we might feel numb. We might 
we might feel nothing at all, but his words will strengthen you. His words strengthen us. His words feed us. His words lead us. His words will see us through, even along the darkest and loneliest roads we ever have to walk. In your pain and in your suffering and your loss, in these things that that are just absolutely crushing your hopes, Jesus Christ is walking with you. Jesus Christ is speaking to you. Jesus is the spark that lights the fire of hope in your life. In your great darkness, Jesus is your light. In your terrible loneliness, Jesus is your true companion. When you're flooded by overwhelming grief, Jesus is the ark that keeps you safe. And when the wolves of this life circle to tear you apart, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his own life to protect you. And now nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing. Whatever dark, lonely road to Emmaus that you've walked, whatever dark, lonely road to Emmaus that you're walking right now, Jesus is walking with you. And he is speaking to you. And it's all because Jesus has suffered and died and is risen. Jesus is alive and well, and he is walking and talking with you now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, giving us this uh, intimate little historical view of what happened on that first Easter. And... Uh, and, and how this uh, little story here tells us maybe in better ways than a lot of other texts that, that not only is, is Jesus risen, not only can we meet him, but that he walks and talks with us. And so, Father, help us when we don't think that he's there, when we don't feel that he's there. Help us to know and trust that he is. Help us to never forget that he's always there, walking with us in our regular, everyday lives and especially in the pain and suffering of our lives. And we would ask, Father, that by your Spirit that, that you would help our hearts to burn in our chests too, just like the Emmaus Roadwalkers, and help our lives to be transformed by walking and talking with Jesus throughout our life. For we do pray all these things in his name. Amen.